If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And there were loads of debates in the Foreign Office, which pretty much said, it's just not cricket. Brits shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. We should lead by example. And the counter-argument was, yeah, but the Soviets are doing it. The Soviets are playing dirty, and therefore there's too much at stake. We've got to play dirty too. That was Rory Cormack talking about British covert actions through history. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Rory Cormack an expert on the history of intelligence, based at the University of Nottingham. He's the author of the recently published book Disrupt and Deny, which explores several covert aspects of Britain's foreign policy over recent decades. Our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn paid a visit to Rory in Nottingham to find out more. So today I'm at the University of Nottingham, joined by Rory Cormack. Rory is an Associate Professor of International Relations And he's also the author of a new book, Disrupt and Deny, which looks at the somewhat murky history of British covert action since the end of the Second World War. So, Rory, before we go any further, what exactly is covert action? Covert action is the type of intelligence operation where you're not just trying to gather information, you're trying to shape events, you're trying to interfere in the affairs of another nation, but crucially in a deniable or unacknowledged uh, manner. So you can fix elections, uh, issue what we might now call fake news, and it can't be traced back to you. So can you give us some examples, we'll go into these in more detail later probably, but of what Britain was trying to achieve with covert action um, after the Second World War? Britain, as we know, was massively in decline after the Second World War. Its imperial status was being challenged, its um, economy was being challenged, its military was being challenged. And Britain saw covert action as an opportunity to use the smoke and mirrors of intelligence and secrecy to try and mask this decline, to try and bridge this gap between our perceived global responsibilities and our dwindling capabilities. And so intelligence, MI6, special forces uh, were relied upon by successive prime ministers and foreign secretaries to create an impression that Britain was still at the top table. Um, Something I found really interesting in your book, and that you mentioned it just then, was the idea that crops up again and again about plausible deniability, which sounds very kind of shady to us. Can you explain a bit more about what that involved? 
the classic understanding of plausible deniability, and it's a bit of a myth, <laughs> is that you do an operation, the outcome of the operation is clear, is visible. So somebody in the extreme case might die if it's an assassination operation or a government might be overthrown. But crucially, the sponsor's hand remains deniable or remains plausibly deniable, which basically means we might suspect that Britain was involved in overthrowing the Iranian government in 53, to give a famous example, but we can't actually prove it. And Britain can stand up if they wanted to and deny plausibly that Britain had no involvement in that particular coup. Now, in reality, the issue of plausible deniability is flawed because even at the height of the Cold War, even when we think of these famous operations, which were classically plausibly deniable, everyone knew what was going on. So it's a bit of a myth. To go back to kind of uh, how we started, what you spoke a little bit about what forms covert action took, but I wonder whether you could um, just expand on that a bit. So uh, you mentioned a lot about uh, propaganda and you did also mention assassinations, government overthrows, stuff like that. There's a broad spectrum of covert action, ranging from um, what someone once called the, 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 the shandy drinkers covert action, which is <laughs> light, a bit weak, the, the information propaganda type operations, which can be um, what we call grey, which means that the propaganda is selectively edited, unattributable, might not contain lies as such, um, but we don't know who the author is or the, who the sponsor is. And that can go through to what we call black propaganda, which might contain uh, lies, or might even try and frame someone else, give a fake author to try and discredit them. Um, and then we go through with political covert action, which involves uh, giving money covertly to political parties, giving uh, money to politicians, bribery, blackmail, um, trying to influence elections, um, economic covert action, which might involve creating runs on currencies, counterfeit currencies, um, to try and mess around with inflation rates, all the way through to paramilitary and special operations, which are the more kinetic, the more hardcore type covert action, which actually most people think of when they think of covert action. They think of guns and coups and bombs and assassinations. In reality, that only forms a tiny percentage in most of its influence operations. But on this, on this more hardcore end, we might see sabotage of, I don't know, munitions factory or railway lines. We might see uh, kidnap. There's a great file in the Foreign Office where Anthony Eden, as Foreign Secretary, was demanding that we kidnap a Saudi sheikh in the early 1950s to try and resolve uh, some oil disputes. Um, and it goes all the way through to assassination which I should say Britain does not have a, a track record of doing. So there's a really interesting um, kind of paradox here that in this in the 20th century, Britain really portrayed itself as, you know, a, a nation of gentlemen um, as such on being kind of benevolent on the world stage, but really this is an undercurrent underneath. It was Wilson, wasn't it? A, 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 nation, of, a nation of gentlemen and a league of players or, or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, but this type of activity allowed us to, try, at least try anyway, to project this image of, of um, 
being a gentleman, whilst also having to take a more pragmatic, shall we say, approach. And this caused a lot of debate inside Whitehall. All of this kind of discussion about this isn't very British. And there were loads of debates in the Foreign Office, which pretty much said, it's just not cricket. Brits shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. We should lead by example. And the counter-argument was, yeah, but the Soviets are doing it. The Soviets are playing dirty, and therefore there's too much at stake. We've got to play dirty too. And it got quite acrimonious between various um, various officials. One of my favourite quotes was from a foreign office diplomat who was uh, imploring that we do more of these dirty tricks. Um, and he said something like, we must remember we are wrestling with a tiger, not arguing with a professor of epistemology. <laughs> and it just put it in the context in which they, they often talk in files is just is, 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 is very interesting. Mention there of the Soviets, of course, this was the era of the Cold War. And you talk about, um, we think of uh, American spies and Soviet spies uh, are ve- are very well portrayed in fiction and on film. But you suggest that the British also did a bit of meddling behind the Iron Curtain um, after Stalin's death, particularly. We did lots of meddling, um, in front of, on and behind the Iron Curtain. And that's one of the things that the book hopefully addresses is that covert action isn't just about American coups in Guatemala. It's not just about the Soviets um, in, in, in Western Europe. It's also something which Britain has long done. In fact, Britain has been doing covert action since before Britain even existed been doing covert action back in Queen Elizabeth I's days against uh, Philip of Spain. And we shouldn't forget that Britain has its own history of, of this with varying degrees of success. And I would argue with its own distinctive approach uh, to, to covert action, um, often involving uh, post-1945, involving a small network of old boys that served in World War II behind enemy lines, were constantly plucked out of retirement to undertake ever more secretive and sensitive operations. As well as the Cold War, another big um, theme of the post-war world was, of course, decolonisation, which you talk about in the book. I wonder whether you could uh, tell us a bit about the role that covert action played in that. This was an area where there was particular debates about what role covert action should play, because after... Some disagreements, they kind of agreed that covert action was okay against the mendacious Soviets because the Soviets were playing dirty, were assassinating people, um, and therefore if we were engaged in operations, including things like um, blackmailing Soviet officials, uh, spreading unattributable propaganda, even planting evidence on Soviet officials to try and stir up purges um, and internal dissent inside the Soviet bloc. Well, that's kind of okay because the Soviets uh, were hell-bent on world domination. However, the colonial sphere is different, uh, not least because the uh, colonial population were technically British subjects. And this raised this whole debate about can we subvert British subjects can we, or how much should we tell local leaders about this stuff? And there were very senior people inside MI5 
saying, no, you cannot do this. It completely undermines our entire approach to decolonization and our whole effort of to, to, to gain trust as we move forward into the Commonwealth. We cannot be doing uh, these kind of operations because they will leak. Some will leak and we will undermine our whole reputation. But in the end, they did try to do quite a few covert actions across across the, the, the dwindling empire. They were active, in, or tried to be active in, in Africa, tried to be active in Southeast Asia. But despite a lot of planning in the mid-1950s, for various reasons, it never really came off. Um, often because planners in Whitehall didn't understand the colonial context. And the bigger, the, 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 the bigger issue was the relationship with America. And the, the, the example here is British Guyana, where there was uh, a leader, Chedi Jagan, whom intelligence services were convinced was, was a communist and potential Soviet stooge. And the Americans were, were saying, we need covert action. We need to do um, various operations, blackmail, bribery, propaganda, to try and ensure he doesn't win an election, try and overthrow him. And the Brits were saying, we we shouldn't, it's a colonial territory. And Britain took utter delight in making the Americans squeal for more imperialism and covert action on imperial territories. And Macmillan absolutely uh, loved it. And he wrote in his diaries how much joy it gave him to make Washington squirm over the colonial issue. So Britain used covert operations during the end of empire counterinsurgencies, um, including in Malaya, including in Aden, Cyprus, and in Kenya. And there was a wonderful series of files which talked about some of the information or propaganda operations they might try and do against the, the Mau Mau insurgents. The one that sticks in my mind was they wanted to create a fake epidemic to try and lure the Mau Mau insurgents out of the forests where they were hiding. So what they planned on doing was sending a few people dressed up in white hazmat suits to pretend there was some sort of disease going on, going around. They wanted to put fake notices in newspapers saying there is this epidemic um, and saying that anyone who eats any of the berries in the forest will become ill. And they wanted to make this even more realistic by putting a few corpses around just to try and make it as as, as believable as possible. And this, they hoped, would would make the, the Mau Mau think, ooh, we're not we're not we're not safe in we're not safe in the forest. We need to come out into the villages, which would make them more visible, and um, Britain could then arrest or, or, or um, engage with them. Um, sadly, I don't know if this ever came to fruition. The, the archive trail dropped dead, but it's a crazy scheme. Well, as a historian, it's always difficult to unearth sources, and you basically have given yourself the hardest job possible to unearth sources about things that are inherently covert kept under wraps on purpose, plausibly deniable. How do you go about um, recreating the picture of what really happened? It's really hard, and I like a challenge. 
it's covert action is possibly the most sensitive of all intelligence and secrets activity. And as you can imagine, there are no files in the British in the British archives called British covert action. Uh, so it takes a lot of digging. MI6 files are all classified. Uh, Special Forces files are classified. But when we know where to look, there are hints and snippets in random files, files which you might think are particularly boring. Treasury files, for example, shipping files, might just come up with a couple of interesting snippets and you can start to stitch them all together. Uh, There's a lot more out there than people realise if you know where to look. And then you can uh, cross-reference with private papers held in places like Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, Churchill College Cambridge is famously outstanding for its collection of um, ministers and officials' papers since 1945. And some of the most prominent figures in covert action have left lots of papers there. Um, So that's very useful. Or the other option, this is all combined, um, one of the joys of being a historian of this type of activity is you get to go to America and do the American archival trail. So I got to go to small town in Missouri. I got to go to Kansas. I got to go slightly more glamorously to Los Angeles, where the Reagan archive just happens to be. Um, so I had a nice few weeks out there. Uh, so it's a, it's a multi-archival approach and trying to get as many fragments as possible and stitch them together into a compelling and convincing narrative. And so are some things still classified beyond the kind of usual 30, 50 year classification? Are there some files that you're like, oh, I just wish I could get my hands on that? Big time. There are, so all all of the MI6 stuff is exempt from the normal declassification uh procedures. Um, Even cabinet office material, which would normally be part of the 30-year, 20-year rule, um, when it comes to covert action, is classified because intelligence and security uh, has its own own framework. Um, And so there are papers talking about covert action from the 1950s, which I've tried to get released. They've released some of them, but for Literally a year later, 55, I think, they said no. And I sometimes I just think, why? You're showing me 54, but you're not showing me 55. And it can be incredibly infuriating. Something really good happened in 55. Well, that's the thing. That's the danger, though, because my assumption then is something really interesting and important happened in 55. And yet, occasionally, when you finally get your hands on these things, they're really, really boring. So there's a danger when you're writing these histories and there's a big black hole in the archive to assume the worst or the most exciting, whatever your perspective is, um, when in reality it might be withheld for a very mundane bureaucratic reason. And I found stuff which has been classified in one file, but open in another file, I assume due to human error. Um, and it's really dull. And you look at it and think, why? Why is this classified in the other file? Um, so it is, it is tempting to let your imagination run wild when you see redactions. So another conflict you cover later is Northern Ireland and uh, covert action against the IRA. And you kind of look at the extent to which the British may or may not have been involved in what you call extrajudicial killing. Um, I wonder whether you could just tell us what you found there. Ireland was, is a particularly controversial area in, in all of this because Britain 
engaged in a range of covert actions um, across the empire in these counterinsurgencies um, with minimal dissent, really, including some, some quite hardcore and aggressive um, operations. And then suddenly they tried to bring some of this thinking to Ireland, which is obviously much closer to home, um, subject to much greater scrutiny, and and against British subjects as well. So it's so with Ireland, it was more a case that it was close to home that rather than it was you know a couple of decades later that was kind of what caused the controversy. Yeah, yeah, it was it was the proximity and the fact that it was against British citizens. So when when Britain wanted to use propaganda against the IRA, um, which they did, um, and they examples include uh, famously trying to portray them as uh, satanic worshippers by constructing upside down crosses in fields in Northern Ireland, um, trying to bla- uh, discredit plant evidence um, on IRA leaders. Um, this was particularly controversial because it was so close to home and the Foreign Office justified this by trying to play up the foreignness of the IRA. So they're playing up the links to Ireland, uh, playing up the links to the Soviets, saying that they were Soviet-inspired, and perhaps most oddly, playing up the links to the Vatican City, <laughs> playing up the Catholicism angle and saying, well, they're foreign, they're, they're Vatican-inspired, and therefore they can be subject to British uh, covert operations. So the files on propaganda are particularly interesting because they show that Britain engaged in a whole range of information operations to try and uh, discredit, sow divisions amongst the IRA. But importantly, the files can be traced right back to number 10. So these aren't just local, uh, local officials going a bit further than they should have done. Edward Heath, in the aftermath of internment and Bloody Sunday, came out strongly and said, we need more propaganda, we need to wage an information war because we're losing one. And I think his quote was, let's flood the place with propagandists. And we see a similar a similar approach with what has been called um, hit squads and shoot-to-kill operations. And this is where it gets particularly controversial. And there was a, a group called the Military Reaction Force who were undercover military personnel operating in Northern Ireland in 1972. And they have attracted a great deal of controversy for allegedly being behind many killings, including of unarmed uh, civilians. What we found is that Edward Heath knew about this, these, these units. He knew about some of the more risky, provocative, aggressive operations they were undertaking. And he knew that they they were not working as well as they should have done. Uh, And Heath was actually suggested professionalising them and bringing more SAS people into Northern Ireland to ensure that um, this underdeveloped, maybe amateurish approach could be professionalised a little bit. Overall, looking over the whole period since 1945, you could give some examples of times that you think 
British covert action has been most effective and arguably shaped the course of events? It's really hard to work out, to measure the effect of covert action. And even the Brits didn't know sometimes. When in the 50s, 60s, when Britain was was pumping out propaganda across the whole Middle East, the Foreign Office asked the propagandists, is it working? And they said, we don't know. We've got no way of measuring it. We can't, we can't judge it. So we, but we might as well keep spamming it out because it can't do any harm. That, that was the approach. And it's, it's very difficult to measure because how do we know a coup that Britain sponsored wouldn't have happened anyway? And historians at the moment are increasingly arguing that maybe we're overplaying, particularly the American hand in all of this, and giving too much agency to the CIA for coups which might have might have happened anyway. Iran 53 is a good example where Britain was involved a lot, as, as we found out, um, in, the, in the coup. So it's not just a CIA coup uh, to overthrow Mohammad Mossadegh um, after he nationalised the oil. But historians are saying, well, maybe this would have happened anyway because a successful covert action cannot create opposition from scratch. It has to build on forces that are already there. And so therefore, it's really hard to isolate the impact that the covert, um, the covert action actually had. That said, I'm giving a bit of an academic answer and sitting on the fence. Um, so it's, I think it had a, an intangible effect in two ways. One, it created, um, it created space for overt policies to have more chance of success. I think by creating problems for the Soviets at home, for stirring up dissent, um, trying to instigate purges, for example, it sometimes gave the Brits an opportunity to negotiate from a position of strength. So when covert and overt worked hand in hand, it it just gave an, an advantage. A second way in which it had effect was in alliances, in, particularly in the so-called special relationship with the Americans, where regardless of whether it worked or not, the fact that we were doing it and working with the Americans in doing it gave us leverage and a window into Washington in an otherwise increasingly asymmetrical relationship. And there's a lovely quote from one of the senior CIA covert ops guys where he says, Every time we want to subvert a country, we find the Brits own an island in easy reach. So you just see this, this, this it's a useful relationship. Um, so in that way, it also uh, proved, proved, um, proved very useful. You also suggest that this, the involvement in covert action may have gone right up to the top as in British royalty. Well, it certainly went up to the top in terms of prime ministers and foreign secretaries. And one of the things that we've learned is that we're not talking about MI6 officers going rogue here. They always had instructions, or nearly always had instructions from Downing Street. But there was one very intriguing instance when mid-1950s, a senior foreign office diplomat was having dinner at Buckingham Palace. And he was updating the Queen about a particular Middle Eastern leader who was obstructing British foreign policy in the region. 
And in a rare moment of indiscretion, she, she looked at him and said that she was surprised that nobody had found means of putting something in his coffee. And the diplomat was slightly taken aback, um, but replied that this was a good idea, Your Majesty, which ought to be applied to a number of people in the Middle East, uh, and then promised to keep her updated about various developments in the region. Uh, he noted in his diary afterwards that he had wanted to tell the Queen uh, that her comment was dangerously like a remark made on a famous occasion by um, her predecessor, King Henry II, when he famously uh, asked, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest before a couple of his knights promptly rode off and murdered Thomas Beckett? Uh, but, he, but he said he was too scared to bring that up to, to the Queen. And it's just an interesting example of this kind of stuff, whether she meant it or not, being discussed um, inside Buckingham Palace. So you may or may not be placed to answer this. Do we have any sense of... Um, covert action today, first of all, um, and also what the future of it might be. I'll answer that. With, <laughs> with, with all the caveats of an academic historian, yeah. I'll answer it anyway. Um, we know that Russia has been accused of launching all sorts of covert operations around the world, including the alleged attempted assassination on British soil in Salisbury. History tells us that Britain, time and time again, when faced with a similar threat in the 40s, in the 80s, debated how to respond. And there was always a fairly large contingent, uh, particularly in the Ministry of Defence, arguing that we should be doing more covert operations as as a response. We should counter fire with fire effectively. And I would be confident similar debates are going on right now. How do we counter Russian fake news? Is it enough to just expose the lies, which might work, but it's only one voice among many and it's difficult to gain traction? Or should we engage in our own unattributable propaganda? I would be very confident a similar debate um, is going on right now. And Over the last four or five years, Britain has increasingly recognised the value of of covert operations. They've done it quite openly, if you you can read between the lines and know where to look. So they talk about, um, in various security and defence reviews, they talk about the importance of intelligence and disruption operations, of event shaping these are all euphemisms for, for, for covert action. And in a world of austerity, when pretty much every government actor has been slashed, MI6 and special forces have had their funding increased. Um, and ministers see it as a force multiplier to uh, allow Britain to carry on fighting, um, punching above its weights in the world. And the chief of MI6 last year said something like he wants MI6's job is to disrupt the adversaries and to keep them in their on their side of the pitch to keep them away from British shores Um, and that is remarkably similar to a document I found from Harold Macmillan when he was foreign secretary in the 1950s and he said MI6 and this was very much in the context of covert action MI6's job is to disrupt them at source 
And you can just see, if you know the history of the last 70 years of British covert action, then you can see in the language, funding decisions, debates going on today, that Britain still has this capability. And I am very sure still uses it. It Covert action, despite being very controversial, is an important part of a state's foreign policy arsenal. It just needs to be used very cautiously and very wisely. That was Rory Cormack. Disrupt and Deny, Spies, Special Forces and the Secret Pursuit of British Foreign Policy is available in both the UK and the US, published by Oxford University Press. And look out for a review of Rory's book in our September issue, which goes on sale next week. OK, so we've now reached the end of today's episode, but do listen in again on Monday when Tom Holland and Ed Hussein will be exploring the history of Islam. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.